Revelation 15. Take your Bible, turn right there. We're going to look at Revelation 14 because I didn't finish that last week. You didn't give me enough time. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, you did. You gave me enough time. And uh, we didn't finish that. And we'll, we'll study Revelation 15, which I think is the shortest chapter in, in Revelation. But don't get your hopes up there. Just don't do that. We don't often say this, but a call to follow Jesus is a call to, it's a call to suffer. A call to follow Jesus is a call to suffer. I remember the first time that someone taught me that directly. I was a student at Moody Bible Institute. I was 18 years old, and it really came as a shock to me. This young guy from California came to speak in chapel. He was a kind of a hip young guy. His name was John MacArthur. And uh, he came to speak in chapel at Moody, and he talked on how to know God's will which was really a fascinating thing to study. How do you know God's will? And one of the things he said is, it's God's will for you to suffer. And he, then he, you know, if you know John MacArthur, you know that he took his Bible and he went to passage after passage to prove his point from the Bible that a call to follow Jesus is going to involve suffering. One of the ways to say that is when Jesus called men and women to follow him, sometimes, what would he say? How would he say it? He would say, take up your cross and follow me. That just doesn't really sound like that much fun, does it? Take up your cross. You're going to have some pain. You're going to have some sadness. You're going to have some heartache. You're going to have some opposition. You're going to be in spiritual warfare. Prepare for suffering. Man, you feel better having come to church and heard that. And we might as well be honest and truthful. Now, but here's an interesting thing. We're not called to suffer alone. And we're not called to suffer without some powerful, God-given resources to face the difficulties that we're going to face. And this is true in the Revelation, because what you have in Revelation chapter 6 through 18, as you know, if you've been regularly attending or if you've been watching online, and so many of you have, I guess more than half of the audience is watching online. And as you get your shots, I know more and more you are getting your shots and, and you're coming to, to be with us. And, uh, and, and, I, and I think, so our, our group here is growing and we're, we're grateful for that and we pray for God's safety and protection over all of us as we kind of hopefully round third and head for home and, uh, and it, perhaps. And, and yet uh, a hardship is not something that should surprise Christians because the Bible says that's what we would go through. And if you, so if you've been studying with us in the book of Revelation, you know that there's a vision of, that primarily Revelation is a series of visions of eternal things, a series of visions of things that are spiritual realities. And, and there's a there, hint, hint, there's a hint in that. One of the most powerful ways that we can deal with the hardships that come into our life is to get the full picture of the spiritual realities, the things that are real, but they might be invisible to us in the natural. And so the book of Revelation, it does tell us some things about the past, 
And it tells us some significant things, I believe, very, very, very much about the future, clearly about the future. And some of those things in the future are difficult. And chapters, as you know, chapters uh, 6 through 18, we believe to be a description of a period of time of seven years in length that's coming in the future that's going to be full of difficulty on earth. Some Christians believe the believers will miss this time and they'll be raptured away. All Christians believe in a rapture. In other words, that the saints go to be with the Lord at the second coming of Christ. Some believe it will happen before the tribulation period. Some believe it will happen at, at, at the coming of Christ in power and great glory. And, and, and people with a high view of Scripture, they kind of have discussions about this. And that's what we do here at Bethel. We talk about that. We study about that. We learn about that. And we're allowed to have differences of opinion about that. And we realize that the main things are the plain things are the plain things are the main things and so in this series you know that we've emphasized not the things that we are not sure about that that we that haven't become really focused and clear yet but we've emphasized the things that are very plain and that's what you'll see today a very plain thing in the end of chapter 14 and throughout chapter 15 verses 1 through 8 the full chapter there's something very plain that will help you make it through whatever God calls you to go through even if it means hardship, even if it means suffering, and it will, and even if it means difficulty, there's, there's, a, there's a peace that's given to us here, and I think it might even surprise you. And so we're going to read uh, chapter 15, but we're going to back up because we didn't give adequate coverage to chapter 14 and verse 14. We're going to read from chapter 14, verse 14, through Revelation chapter 15 and, and verse 8. And so now with attention to the Word of God. Then I looked, this is Revelation 14, 14. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud one like the Son of Man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. For the harvest of earth is fully ripe. And so he sat on the cloud. He who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. So you have a, harvest, a picture of a harvest of judgment here. Now you're going to have another picture of a harvest. This is a picture of a vintage, a picture of a harvest of grapes. The picture of the harvest of judgment, many Bible scholars believe, is, is, is one of the first references here in the near context to this, these bowls of judgment that are going to be poured out. And the second, the harvest of grapes, is obviously from, you can tell from reading, a reference to Armageddon. You'll see this, verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called out with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle, gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle. 1,600 stadia. So obviously what you have here is, you have two pictures, I believe two pictures of 
judgments on the earth in the future. Some scholars think the first is the judgment of the righteous. Here's why I don't think so. First, it references the Daniel passage and, and, the, and, the, and the name given to Jesus in Daniel like the Son of Man. That passage is a judgment passage. The, the word for fully ripe here is ripe as in bad ripe, not ripe as in good ripe. So it's not a good harvest that's being harvested, but a bad one. That's my opinion. I think what you have here are, there are other places in the Bible that talk about the harvest of the righteous and the harvest of the unrighteous. I think this is two pictures of the same, uh, uh, two pictures of harvest of the unrighteous. Perhaps the one referring to the bowls of judgment that are going to be poured out. The second one, clearly, you can tell from the context, is a reference to, to Armageddon. And we'll have more study on that as we go on through this. Sometimes Bible teachers will tell you that Revelation doesn't um, follow a strict chronological pattern. Let me, let me explain why I think that's true and how it's true. I think it will help you. Um, in other words, when you read Revelation, you might expect it to be the future parts that just unfold one future thing right after another. But it clearly doesn't do that. And here's why. Because there are at least three places where the chronological narrative is interrupted. If you can imagine you're watching a series on Netflix, and then you have a preview of things to come. And so at the beginning of an episode, rather than just starting into the next episode, it says this is what's going to happen. And that's what God does. Here's what I believe. I believe that God sovereignly through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he revealed these things to John, revealed these, these parentheses, if you will, just before the judgments that are called the seal judgments, the seven seal judgments are opened in heaven and poured out upon earth, as symbolically opened in heaven, poured out upon the earth. But before that, you have a parenthesis that encourages the saints by giving them a view of heaven in, in chapter four and five. And then before the trumpet judgments, you have an interruption and a little preview of things to come. But it's set in the context of heaven, and it's encouraging the saints. Before these terrible things happen, get a picture of what's going on in heaven. Before these terrible things happen on earth, remember what's happening in heaven. Remember the things that are true. Remember the things that are eternal. Remember the glory of God in heaven before these things happen on earth, which is so horrific. Let's not lose our bearings about what's happening in the universe. God is still on his throne. And you keep getting pictures of heaven before things are poured out on the earth. And now you have another one. And it really is shocking what happens because we have just read of the great wine press of the wrath of God. This is not fun. This is not happy. This is extremely sobering. There, there's, a, there's at least a, a, a creative literary reference to blood flowing, splattering perhaps up to the horse's bridle over a, over a geographic area of 200 miles. No thinking person could ever read this without being sobered. God's warning of great wrath and judgment being poured out. It's a very sobering thing to think about. No one should be gleeful about that. And so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's shocking to read. Now we arrive at Revelation 15. And what would you expect? Now preview of things to come. You're going to have two pictures here that are actually shocking. He says they're uh, another sign in heaven, great and amazing. 
And if you were a really careful student of the Bible, you would see in probably 500 places or more, there are references back to Old Testament. This is an exam example of one. You can see a parallel between the plagues of Egypt and the plagues here. You can see a parallel between, you know, the deliverance of God's people and the Song of Moses and the deliverance of God's people here. You can, you can see hundreds of them. This is great and amazing. This isn't the first time this is in the Bible. But you have this shocking picture that God's allowed John to see pass onto the churches and the Spirit has preserved in, in providential ways for the Bethel family to have a copy of this in our lab today and the Spirit is speaking to us. And what would he say to you? What would he say to us today? How is he using this to encourage you? I think you'll be surprised, but the first picture when we actually read this, the first picture you're going to see is that there's a group of saints that have survived the tribulation through martyrdom. They've gone through the tribulation through martyrdom and they're gathered by this crystal sea, the sea of glass, and they're doing something very unusual. They're singing. They're singing. That's shocking. And then there's a second picture, and it involves, it's alluded to in verse 1, and, then it, and, and it's specifically described that again you have a glimpse not into just the heavenlies but you have a glimpse into the not only the throne room of God but the, but the holy of holies and and the and like in chapter 11 there was chapter 4 verse 1 there's a reminder of a glimpse into heaven chapter 8 in verse 1 there's a reminder of a glimpse into heaven in chapter 11 at the end of chapter 11 it, it even says and and you see the ark of the covenants there and now it goes even deeper in this passage you're going to see as we read it not only the Ark of the Covenant, but the reminder of the testimony of the Lord in the holy place. You're gonna, in other words, you're going to get to see into, the, into the, the holy of holies until the glory cloud covers that up. But now, now I've set that up, so let's read it. You'll understand it a little bit better having me describe that. Let's go now to Revelation 15.1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels and seven plagues which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. So you have the seven plagues that were the seven trumpets and the seven plagues or judgments that were the seven, I'm sorry, the seven seals and the seven plagues or judgment that were the seven trumpets. Now you're about to have the seven bold judgments and they pour out rapidly at, at the return of Christ. And, and so he says the seven angels with the seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And again, here's that, here's that phrase, and I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb saying, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. 
They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. You alone are holy. All nations will worship you, and your righteous acts have been revealed. This is the song they're singing by the crystal sea. The saints that's, that made their way through the tribulation singing the song of Moses and of the Lamb by the crystal sea. They're exalting in the glory of God and his righteous acts of judgment. Interesting. Now the, now the second picture. And after this I looked. There is that phrase again. And after this I looked. And the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven is open. Sing into the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, the representation of the Torah, the law of God. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels and with the seven plagues clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. Quick question. Good guys or bad guys? Clearly good guys. Clearly good guys. Just saying. Keep it in mind. These that are bearing forth the judgments to give to the angels to pour out the judgments on the earth are, are good guys. This is, this is a righteous thing. This one who pours out judgment, his, his, these are righteous acts. It's a good thing. It's a righteous thing. And so they have golden sashes around their chest. And one of the four living creatures, again, in ranks of angels, you commonly see into heaven, you see these living creatures, high ranks of angels, gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of wrath. When did we see that last? I, I keep interrupting the reading with commentary here. When did we see that last? These are, the, these are, these are probably connected with the prayers of the saints converted into pouring out bowls of wrath. It's like, and then the next chapter, you see this very clearly. God is vindicating the suffering of his saints by pouring out his just wrath. And, and so it says in, in, in verse 7, and with the four, the one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. No one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. That's just a prelude to what's going to happen now in 16 as these bowls are poured out. But you've gotten a prelude, but you've gotten a prelude in the context of singing saints by the crystal sea and good guys giving the angels the bowls of wrath to pour out. So Revelation 4 and 5 is the prelude that precedes the seven seal judgments. Revelation 8, 1 through 6 is the prelude that precedes the trumpet judgments. Revelation 15 is the prelude that precedes the bold judgments. You started to see the structure and why it's not cleanly chronological, but it is very orderly. It's probably lots more orderly than any Bible teacher has ever really been able to plumb. One day when we're with the Lord, he'll say, let me show you a few things you might have overlooked, I imagine. I'm sure. And so in Revelation 14, you have two pictures of coming judgments. You have warnings. Remember this, before the judgments, warnings, warning. God has supernaturally warned all, everybody on earth through preachers, through the 144,000 witnesses, to the, the two witnesses and faithful Christians and angels flying around the earth and warning and warning and warning. It's not like people don't have a warning. So far, there's just been so many warnings, but finally, 
in chapter 8 of verse 15, what you'll see today is that the warnings are over and in the glory cloud of God's judgment makes it, it's like the door of the ark closes and the opportunities to repent are over. It's going to end. That will happen someday. When I read this, you know, I, I was raised in church singing hymns and I love new songs so much. I love them. Just love them. Brand new songs all the time. And I also love old songs. I love them old and new. So you're not going to get me on the one side or the other of that because I'm an old guy, but I, but I love new songs. So you, you, can't, you can't get me on one side or the other. I don't think you should be on one side or the other of that. I think we should just love God's people and love God's, the songs through the ages. But I get hymns come back to my mind. When I was a boy, we would sing, I will sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me. Sing it with the saints in glory, gathered by the crystal sea. Do you remember singing that? I will sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me. I'll sing it with the saints in glory, gathered by the crystal sea. The writer of that was an orphan. His dad was killed in the Civil War. An evangelist came to town one day who was an orphan. His dad was taken away from him when he was young. The evangelist preached the love of God. His name was uh, Dwight Moody. This young man got saved, and he went into the ministry. As a matter of fact, he, it was very unique because he, he had a good voice, and he loved to singing to be a part of his ministry. And so he would often go out, and he would minister in word and in song, but he loved to take the gospel out where lost people were. So he liked meetings in the open air, and he liked singing in the open air, but he couldn't, but he couldn't sing as well in the open air as he could inside because he didn't have an organ. He actually developed a little tiny organ, a little tiny portable organ, the Billhoff organ, and God allowed that company to succeed so well, it supported him the rest of his life while he went around giving the gospel to people. He wrote that song, I will sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me. Sing it with the saints in glory, gathered by the crystal sea. I always preach my messages to people in the office before I preach them. I was preaching to Pat in the office, the poor kid. He's hearing me preach all the time. Young man. Um, he's not a kid. I, I retract that part. He's, I'm coveting his youth. But he said, I have one of those organs. I go, what? He goes, yeah. I go, let me see. He goes in his office and brings one back. He's got a little Bill Hoff organ, and, and his, his great-grandmother gave it to him. This has nothing to do with my message, but I thought it was just cool. <laughs> I will sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me. I'll sing it. I'll sing it with the saints in glory gathered by the crystals. I'm going to suffer here, but I'll be singing by the crystal sea one day. God's going to call me through a hardship, but I, but I will persevere by God's grace and I will be singing with the saints by the crystal sea one day. You going to join me there? What a song we'll sing. How sweet it will be. That's the picture you got to keep in your mind in order to endure in the hardships that we're about to face. There will be a day of singing by the crystal sea. And what will we be singing about? We'll be singing about the glory of God. And what will be the glory of God? His justice is a part of his glory. 
But, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So then the seven angels are given these bowls of judgment. And the smoke of the glory cloud comes out, as we just read. And this has happened before. If you read the Old Testament, you know in Exodus, you have all of the detail of the tabernacle. And then the completion of the tabernacle, there's this wonderful time of dedication of the tabernacle. And God smiles on that by allowing a glory cloud to fall. This is an amazing, miraculous thing you can't see because of the cloud that, of God's favor that, he, that, that literally manifests itself. And again, when the temple was completed, one of the most beautiful things to read about in the Bible are the prayers at the dedication of the temple, the, the scene of the dedication of the temple, and the glory of God falling, a favor of God, the glory cloud falling on that. And that's the picture that you have in the second part of chapter 15 in in the heavenlies as we look into the heavenlies to prepare us for the great hardship that's going to come on earth he says now look into heaven first of all you see this they're singing the song of deliverance a song of Moses and then you have the the one of the living creatures assigning to the angels the the bulls of plagues or hardships that are going to come upon the earth Back to the song, the song of Moses and what else? And the song of Moses and of how sweet is that? It, it's interesting too, isn't it? It, 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 wouldn't, it wouldn't take much creativity to see that God again, as he does over and over again, is tying the story of Israel and the story of the church, to, to, to the Old Testament saints and New Testament saints you know, together. Obviously pointing back to this time that God, and he reminded the people through the stories, God can deliver you from your enemies. God can deliver you from your hardships. God is capable of delivering you. And on the other side of the sea of deliverance, you will sing a song of deliverance. That's the song of, of Moses. I know you're having it hard right now. I know you have hardships in your life. I know that there are single moms who feel like they got dealt a really bad hand. I know there are people that like you look across the your neighbor has so much more money and he can go on vacations and you've been trying to be faithful to God but why don't why does he make more money than you do? I know you heard from your kid something that you your kid would never say to you. I know that. I know you, you're older and and you're thinking, I can do this in my declining years, and we can do that. And you didn't think you were going to be battling against cancer or depression or wayward kids or hardships like that. But I will tell you, there will be a day when the one who delivers will deliver you, and you will sing on the other side of the crystal sea. And it will be so beautiful and so fulfilling, the scriptures say, it will make like our Difficulties that we have now seem light and momentary. Just an encouraging word for you. I really think that's why this is here. And you can't miss this. I, if you're looking for the big idea and you study hard to say, what's the one thing that puts all this together? You, you can't really avoid. This is a vindication of God's righteousness. This is a vindication of his justice. His justice is a part of what makes him beautiful. God's justice is a part of his glory and cannot be separated. He would not be good if he was not just. If his wrath wasn't poured out against sin in his own godly, measured, righteous way. This is the language. Look at the end of verse 4. Your righteous acts have been revealed. 
Look at the beginning of verse 4. Who will not fear? This is in the song of Moses and of the Lamb. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? What is glory? Glory, if you think of all the various beauties of God, like the glory of Christ or the glory of God, would be gather all the things about him and his character that are compelling or magnetic or beautiful. Gather them all together in one place, in one thing. That would be one way to describe the glory of God. And the scriptures teach us that when we gaze with admiration, the admiration of the soul, Tozer said, the gaze of the soul on the glory of God, then we're transformed and Tozer wasn't the only one who said that. The Apostle Paul wrote that. I'll show you that later. We'll get to that. Let me just, let me just um, do it this way. Let me share. If the Holy Spirit inspired this vision for John to have, to give to the churches, and the Holy Spirit preserved that for the Bethel people this morning, what would he have us? What, what would he have us take from this? I want to make some, I would call them suggestions, but they're biblical commands, but they're implications from this. And there, there are three that I think we should think about today that I think you'll find to be really helpful. So since we know that God, that a part of God's glory is his justice, a part of God's beauty is his justice, his perfect justice, then there, there, there are three things I want to suggest from this that, I, that are implications that, are, that I want to remind you of three other play, biblical teachings. One is, so we don't judge God. We don't judge God. It's popular now to, you know, kind of doubt God. To put God, like C.S. Lewis says, to put God on trial, to put him in the dock. And, and to say, I, I'm, try, I'm trying to decide whether or not I agree with God. Well, he's the judge, you see. It's important to recognize that when everything ends and the ultimate things unfold, the saints will be singing and they'll be singing of the perfect holiness of God and that will include his perfect justice. And, and so if you are traveling through a hard patch, if you have heard really bad news, if you're struggling with something really hard, don't be tempted to doubt the goodness of God. Don't be tempted to doubt the justice of God. Don't you put God on trial. Don't judge God. The, understand, these are the good guys. In the, in the New Testament, it's the guys with the white hat that are... In God's name, they're meeting out judgment when judgment is due. And there have been appropriate warnings and all of that. Somebody says, well, I don't think God has been fair to me. I've been on the bad end of business dealings. I would say, well, if you study the Bible, you recognize, like I've heard it said before, that the wheels of God's justice grind slow but exceeding fine. Or as one person said, God doesn't settle all of his accounts on Friday. There is coming a day when God will reward the faithful and his judgment will fall on those who haven't fled to him for mercy. And that's his glory. So we don't judge God. 
second thing that's really clear is we don't need to judge people. If God is a righteous judge, we may be discerning. We should be discerning. We should recognize when we want to help someone that we love and to be discerning for that purpose. But it isn't our job to judge, and we don't need to. And God's going to do that so well that it isn't. Listen to Romans 14. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or, or you, why do you despise your brother? We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Let me, let me interrupt the reading of the Bible here to ask you this. Are you tempted to spend more time examining yourself or kind of rendering judgment on people who irritate you? It's kind of a hobby now to criticize the church. It's kind of a hobby. Just get on Twitter. I mean, don't, but if you did, you'd see that. A person who I know who, I know who served the church very faithfully for years, she said something on social media. She said, don't ever criticize the church without saying us, me and us, we're the church, right? So, but, but, Ask yourself the question. You see things that irritate you. You recognize things that people do. You're really bothered by somebody else's wrongdoing, inconsistency, hypocrisy. I get it. But when you think of, when you have a vision of the perfect justice of God, you don't have to spend a lot of time on that because it isn't your job. You see, that's what Paul said. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? And why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God, so that each of us will give an account of himself to God. You can study the judgments of the Bible and the various resurrections of the Bible to say this quickly. Here, here's what I believe. I believe unbelievers go to the great white throne judgment and all of them end up in, in hell. And belie- believers go before the judgment seat of Christ and their, their, their works are evaluated their sins have been judged on calvary by christ i think that's what he's referring to verse 13 says therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer so when you look at revelation 15 and you see the glory of god's justice you can say i'm not going to judge god and i don't need to judge other people mark trotter was an acquaintance of mine in college he's actually a guy that i looked up to a lot Lois and i looked up to him a lot he he was a pastor and a really powerful, used of the Lord in a really powerful way. And la- last week he, he, he died. And I watched his, his funeral online. I couldn't, couldn't go up in New Philadelphia, Ohio. I watched his funeral online. His son spoke at the funeral. Preacher's kid. He gets up and he goes, my dad was a good guy. A lot of people loved him, but some people criticized him and some people were really unfair to him. If you're in ministry, that'll happen to you. Along with a lot of banana nut bread and privileges, you'll also get some probably fair criticism and some unfair uh, criticism. He got his share. At his funeral, his son said, Dad's, I would always say to Dad, how can you, how can you put up with that when people are critical of you? And his son said, Mark said he would smile real big and he would say, I'm not worried about that. God's going to sort that all out at the judgment seat of Christ. That's what we're talking about. It, it would help you, wouldn't it? 
to go, wait a minute, there's injustice in the world. Oh, but there's a great just one who will sort everything out in his own way, in his own time, and I can just trust him with that. Lightens the load, doesn't it? So we don't judge God because if the glory of his justice, we don't judge him. And we don't judge others. We don't need to because of the glory of his justice. But, but there, is, there is one thing that we probably should do, and that is we should carefully judge ourselves. Scriptures are pretty clear about that. You know, in the passage that uh, the Apostle Paul is talking about, the preparation for communion in, in 1 Corinthians, he, he makes an interesting, you know, promise. If you judge yourself, then the Lord won't have to judge you. I've always thought, that looks like a really good deal. And I want to I rush to that judgment. I want to rush to evaluating myself. Am I saved? And how's my sanctification going? Am I truly under the righteousness of Christ for my salvation? And am I in Christ? And am I a genuine believer? And, 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 and how's my progress in sanctification going? How am I... How, how am I doing in that area where the Holy Spirit has promised to make me progressively more holy? That should pretty much occupy my desire to judge. judge don't judge God. Don't judge other people. But, but do judge yourself. It, it, I think this is helpful. I, I had a, 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 a fellow, somebody, a number of people contacted me when a, when a Christian leader made some mistakes. And, and they wanted me, and they wanted me to give my opinion about that. And, and I thought to myself, you, you know, it's easy to be flattered by people asking your opinion about things. So I thought to myself, huh, I could say this or I could say that. And then it occurred to me, it isn't my business to say anything. He doesn't answer to me. I'm not on his board. I don't have all the information. I'm not, it's not my responsibility to render judgment on this man. I don't have all the information about this man. It wouldn't be fair for me to judge. Here's what came to my mind. What Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 3, but with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. Are you tracking this argument? Paul said, uh, it's not really a big deal if I'm judged by man. I don't even trust myself to judge myself, even though I think I have a clear conscience. But he says, it's the Lord who judges me. Verse 5 says, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from the Lord. In the light of Revelation 15 and this picture of God's perfect justice, the glory of his justice, let's be careful not to doubt God or judge God why he allowed something bad to happen to us, why he's allowing something to us to go through something bad. Let's trust him and keep in mind the picture of the singing saints by the crystal sea. And let's be good to one another, patient with one another, and just not judge one another, but love one another, realizing that we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But let's be sure that we look into our own hearts and make sure that we are born again and that we are progressing in, in faith 
because the picture of God's justice will sustain us to do those things. Four years ago, this time of year, I was going through a really sad time. It's kind of why I'm here. I, my goodness, it was hard. And I, and I got in my red Jeep on a, on a Sunday morning. I drove to a little church in Indiana to preach. And I had been treated unjustly. My family had been treated unjustly. My daughter had been treated unjustly. It just wasn't right. And I was alone in my Jeep driving to my little preaching assignment without a job, without an income, without the insurance. Specter of kind of injustice hanging over my head, false accusations, stuff like that. I was really sad. I was alone that day. It's Easter Sunday. I was cleaning my hard drive last week and I found the video of that message. So I watched myself preach. I don't know that's weird, but I did. I was smiling really big, telling people they could trust the Lord. I thought, that guy is preaching to himself right now. That's what he's doing. Nobody could probably tell, but my heart was so broken. Before Bethel, before I knew about Bethel and what God was going to do, before I knew about Bittersweet Farm and what God was going to do. Can I go a couple minutes into overtime and tell you that something that's sweet to me? Years ago, Lois and I went on an uh, anniversary. Hope was with us. We went into the Amish country, and I, I dropped Lois off at a shop she likes to spend hours at. And I thought, I got some time to drive through the countryside, and I, I drove my red Jeep through the countryside, and I thought to myself, someday when the people at this church get tired of me, I'll be really old maybe, and, and I'll retire, and maybe I could find a house on a country road. And maybe there'd be a group of people that would let me be their pastor, maybe just a little group in the country or something. Maybe that's my, maybe that's what I'll do in my retirement, you know. A couple years later, the Lord said, we're, we're going to actually move that plan up a little bit. Guess what? I, I have, I, I have a, a church of, of people who I love and who, who love, love me, and I live in a little house on a country road. And I'm not nearly old enough to retire yet. <laughs> so that's my story. That's a part of my story. I wonder, I was just thinking about you this week and what you've been going through and what makes you sad and hurt and your, your kids or your your health, your hardships. Your... And I just want to tell you, you can trust the Lord. You can trust him. It always, it always isn't going to work out in this life. Sometime he'll say, you, you wait and see on the other side of the crystal sea. You'll have a song. Isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? Would you stand with me? I want to pray a blessing on you today. Heavenly Father, the the Bethel family are gathered here before you online and in person and we're a zoo of need. We are so needy. We have hardships and difficulties and questions and doubts. Give us, I pray, a vision of the singing saints on the other side of the crystal sea. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.